the future is going to be mixed. Our physical spaces are going to be kind of contingent or really intermixed with our virtual spaces. And I think museums and cultural institutions at large maybe haven't been taking full advantage of that. Hi, and welcome to the Culture and Technology Podcast. I'm your host, Severin Matusek. The Culture and Technology Podcast is a virtual salon initiated by the Vienna Business Agency, in which experts from Vienna and around the globe explore how technology is reshaping the future of culture. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the architecture of physical and virtual spaces. Architecture is a huge part of how we experience culture. Take the Museum of Fine Arts in Vienna, for example. When you enter it, you're welcomed by incredibly high ceilings, marble floors, and gold leaves, ready to take in some of history's most incredible fine art. It's clear that when the museum was built in the 19th century, it incorporated the values of its time in how art should be presented and worshipped. Now, digital spaces work in a very similar way, if you think about it. They, too, are built on certain values. Games video calls, or even websites are designed according to certain principles that define how we interact in there. So as the spaces in which we experience culture continually evolve and become more virtual, I wanted to invite two architects to help us understand how space shapes culture. Our first guest is Bika Rebeck, a partner at architecture design firm Someplace Studio who has created physical and virtual spaces with institutions such as the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and the Museum of Applied Arts in Vienna. She is joined by her old friend, Agustin Shang, who is an architect, a curator, and a cultural producer. His work focuses on the intersection of architecture, culture, and the city, which he most recently brought to life as the associate producer of the Mai Long Opera, a public engagement project at the High Line in Manhattan. Together with Bika and Agustin, I sat down to explore the question, how are architecture and new technologies shaping the future of cultural experiences? During this year and the pandemic, we really, it became very clear what the role is. And I think the role is actually to create, uh, you know, that, that that's a very personal definition, but I think it's to create social contact um, and to allow for a level of propinquity or people kind of accidentally encountering each other, running into each other, having somewhat unexpected, unplanned experiences. Because I think what we're really good at right now is doing things like this podcast. We're meeting and for at a specific time and having a specific conversation with a specific intent. But I think what spaces can do is sort of allow for people um, you know, to have this unexpected experience. And I think that's really missing right now. And I think that's something that I think we'll maybe be more aware of in the kind of years to come after that experience. I'm curious, Agus, you, you don't work as an architect per se, I think. You come from a school of architecture, but you work as a cultural producer and curator. But I think you really apply a lot of principles of architecture to producing cultural experiences. Is that correct? So how would you describe it? We met actually doing a specific program here in New York, and we started understanding that architecture is definitely beyond the built environment. I mean, it's beyond the built form. And it's Bika being like someone more like an educator, me being like more like a cultural provocateur and infiltrator, as I try to call myself. Um, I think we have also responsibility to 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 
for the general public public to show architecture as as Tisa was saying before as something that is beyond the the bare like aesthetic like built form and also show them how any little um architectural you know definition or even how any kind of architectural um, situation that is being done by architects or urban planners can affect their lives. That both of us trying to do is to make sure that the architectural message could be more expanded and more democratic and reach more newer audiences. Can you give an example of that? So how in your projects have you applied these principles of using architecture to reach more audiences, make more democratic access for the many people? For me, the turning point really came when I started working at the Met, the Metropolitan Museum in New York City. And I was there as an exhibition designer. And before that, I had worked in different firms and had worked mostly on, you know, what you can call high-end, uh, either residential things or wealthy investors, things like that, that often were in locations um, far away that I would never even be able to visit. And so there was a certain dissociation from the work that I had done. I loved the design part, but uh, it didn't feel like I could actually connect to the people that were uh, going to use that architecture. And so when I started to do exhibition design at the Met, it's the most public thing, right? Like thousands, millions of people go sometimes to see these shows. And I could, uh, on one hand, sort of be on site, um, experience these, you know, not, not just the people visiting, but also the people making and building and setting up the exhibitions, all the different parts that came together, because the exhibitions are done relatively fast. And, um, you know, well, they're not necessarily cheaper, but they always designed also with the premise of being accessible to everybody. We had to think about wheelchair access. We had to think about visually impaired people. We had to, you know, really think about the audience, large uh, range of population that will come in. And then we also started to think about, um, and I think that influenced my work later, is also about digital access and really the whole user journey from how somebody finds out about this to you know, how they get there, what do they do there, how they take a break, all these things. And I think that really became uh, defining for someplace studio and the office that, I, that we started later. I'm so interested about your experience at the, at the Met because, uh, I mean, anyone who has been there in New York City knows it's this amazing place. It's so big. It has so many things to see. You feel like you've never reached an end with all the stuff that's there. So... How would you say has this amazing public space influenced other projects that came after it? Like, can you give an example of maybe a recent exhibition or a recent architecture uh, project that you worked on where you feel like, mm, that's where some of the experience that I had at the Met really influenced my work and my thinking behind that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it reverberates in all the work we do in a way because... You know, it was such an important experience. I always like to say it's my favorite job, except for having my own office. <laughs> um, but very specifically, Uncanny Values at uh, the Mark in Vienna, I think, was sort of, uh, you know, informed by that experience because it was also a public institution, you know, a kind of big exhibition uh, with Malis Wirt, who's, I think, also on this podcast. So it had kind of similar parameters, but sort of applied to a more local context. But I think what I learned at the Met in terms of design also, and that was due to some of the people that I worked with, people like Susan Sellers, um, who's the head of 2x4, is to to push institutions a little bit. So, you know, big institutions like the Met and actually the MAC in Vienna as well, the Museum of Applied Arts, they have a long history, but they also sometimes can be a little uh, slow or, you know, they're maybe not the most adventurous on their own. And so you have, you 
I kind of learned a little bit about the, well, not tactics, but just, you know, that, that it's actually possible to push them. And then th they're really satisfied with that in the end. And I think that that has been kind of a direct effect and learning experience that I could apply later. Uh, maybe that's a good transition to, to Agos, because I'm also interested in your experience with the cultural productions. Have you applied that in your work as well? I think that's main architectural characteristic first, trying to plan and organize things for what we have. Coming from the global south, from South America, from South America, the conditions are never there. So when you're at school and you've been trained as an architect, this apparently there is this idea that all the conditions are the thing that you need to fulfill, but in the real life, nothing of that applies. And I think that requires some kind of architectural way of thinking to work what would you have in terms of like from basic thing from budget to materials to sites and also to to people that you're working with, all the ideas or all the or you can see all the theories and theses actually ended up coming from production, you know, and then coming from those kind of like force and unexpected encounters with things, people and places that, uh, you know, push us to come with some kind of a result. You know, I think that interesting about architecture is also thinking about there have to be some kind of outcome. Again, going back to what we said before, it doesn't have to be extremely like a built outcome, but at least it has some kind of impact or affect it. I'm actually interested in one particular example of your work that I research, which is this project called the Mile Long Opera, which I think you you were a big part of in at the Heinlein. Can you talk a little bit about that? On definitely, first uh, I want to give credit to Dilos Kofidis, she not only been the designer uh, of the Heinlein, but also been working on this project for I think more than six years, trying to reconnect the park uh, with the community. So I just want to clarify to the audience what the High Line is, because maybe not everyone knows it, right? The High Line is this amazing park in, in the Chelsea district of Manhattan. It is an elevator park for that goes for like a month and a half. And there used to be a next um, piece of train infrastructure that was going to be demolished. And then a group of neighbors, um, I think 10, more than 10, maybe 15 years ago, gathered together and started putting, you know, petitions to the city hall not to demolish and also to somehow acknowledge the natural uh, kind of like fauna and flora that appear there and some kind of keep that. And then through a competition, I think Dilesco Video won the, won, uh, won the commission and they created this incredible park. The park create a great, great things for the area, you know, re revitalized kind of like a, a lost part of, Man of Manhattan. So this project was an interesting um, cultural experience design, but uh, Liz Diller, in connection with their performance background in the early, late 80s and 90s, um, to reconnect the park uh, with the community again. So I, I was the producer, as an associate producer of the project, with a, in the beginning with three people working, and imagine them trying to gather a thousand singers was more like trying to build Olympics. So my role there was me finding those participants, those, those singers that are going to be part of, of the project. And, and from the very beginning, uh, for me, knowing the city and understanding how this process operates, when you gentrification and everything, making sure that we can bring the most diverse group of, of, of singers to the park. I want to ask both of you as an open-ended question now. So when we talk about technology and when we talk about virtualization, you know, the fact that we are here in a virtual podcast room talking to each other, how do you think about virtual spaces in regarding the future of cultural experiences, but also the future of architecture? How do you use these virtual spaces and possibilities that we nowadays have to bring people together through architecture, essentially? In my case, I think the, the, 
the not a obsession, but I would say the interest in technology. Actually, origin the origin is at the Angewandte in Vienna because my at, at university with studying with Greg Lynn and with the people who were around there, there was an incredible openness within the architecture curriculum towards trying new technologies. When you're in architecture school, you don't quite realize how you get pushed into certain directions. And it, I just thought that's a default. I thought everybody learns all these new technologies and knows how to use them. And it's kind of open to learning more of them. And then I went into other contexts and realized that that's not necessarily the case. And I think one thing I became particularly interested in is that same idea of how do we actually bring people together in virtual space um, the way that, you know, that, that is really missing. And, and I think that, especially in this pandemic, we're noticing that it's really missing. And this year in particular, I've um, gotten very much into VR um, out, of, out of the circumstances and uh, in particular started to work with Mozilla Hubs, which is um, an open source platform uh, developed by, by Mozilla. And they essentially enable social VR rooms, so you can go in um, and you know hang out in a virtual space, um, and you can use it in VR on your headset. But it also very importantly works on a desktop and even on a phone. And here, this is where the accessibility comes in. It's not the coolest looking, the fastest, the bestest, the most technologically advanced platform, but it is the one that kind of combines um, you know a spatial technology with a very accessible technology that everybody can can access. But I think there's a place uh, and actually a need for architects to think about that because we have a certain kind of training and theoretical background, practical background to think about these spaces, I think, in a slightly different different way. Because a lot of what I see out there is, you know, based on sort of the most typical space is a kind of replica of a real space. You, you know, people rebuild things they know the bar they built that and there's sometimes it's it's hard to find really innovative spaces we're thinking about and trying to figure out new ways of being together there i think we're living in a historical moment for this kind of virtual space like for the virtual space in general because i mean because we were all forced all i mean the entire world was forced to go on a lockdown and the whole world you know, was forced to communicate through some kind of digital platform. I'm talking about from social media to Zoom and also start consuming, uh, you know, digital content. And most of this digital content, especially in culture, was trying to, as Pika was saying, replicate in the kind of interior spaces, in virtual spaces because people couldn't move. And it's interesting how that idea of representation of something was physical. Now, slowly it's changing about trying to be more like a design-oriented technique. The discussion, I feel, is now what, what that's, virtual space going to look like. In order to build on that, I think it's important there is an audience for this thing, that before it wasn't that clear there was an audience was interested in consuming that. And I think that's some kind of like positive kind of outcome of the pandemic. Like every all the time, this kind of like more like the... The virtual as general was kind of a repository on this cultural institution and like afterthought of the physical, you know, like the, 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 the videos or, or, or the images or even like if you have the money and the intentions and, 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 and the aims to do this kind of virtual replicas. So I think that's so important because that's somehow gonna like help us to kind of start imagining how the future is going to look like. I mean, if there is an audience that's been trained for eight months to try to consume that, it means that they're going to be interested in pursuing that for many different reasons, you know, like because that country could be 24-7 available, that means that we don't need to travel, that we, can, we also can be exposed to new environments. I love that you have this 
view, but I think it's a little optimistic, um, at least in terms of what we're trying to do. My observation is that, yes, people are clearly forced to be at home and um, try to use, you know, existing technologies. But that's, that's I think, uh, been the problem. Most people are happy to use Zoom and chat services and social media, but usually it doesn't go beyond that. I think the fear of technology is still there. And I think there's still a lot of work and outreach that we have to do in order for people to embrace this a little bit more engaging, but then sometimes also slightly more challenging experiences. Um, you know, of course, young people, gamers, nerds, all these people are deep into it. And there's whole communities that exist online, that exist in VR, where, you know, people engage, form friendships that have never met in person and all that kind of stuff. But most people our age, I would say, or and older are still quite reluctant. And I've had that experience now with building these spaces, you know. I know people did it because mostly they would be my friends or interested and they would come in and I would teach them. And everyone, I mean, my grandma went in there and she understood how to use it. So it's not that hard, but there is a hurdle, um, a psychological hurdle, I would say, for people to actually use these spaces. But I think before the pandemic, we've already tried to do a lot of virtual projects, uh, sp specifically with museums. And actually last year, 2019, maybe we had the wrong timing, but we went to a bunch of different cultural institutions, actually also in Vienna, and basically pitched, uh, you know, Tools for Show, which was kind of an iteration of a virtual platform that would allow museums to design uh, on in 3D on the web and then also present their projects. And they totally understood it, why it would be good, but nobody would be really interested in funding that, you know, because as you said, there's a premium on reality, there's a premium on um, sort of what we know, of course. And in a pandemic, I think that that premium has gone, but the premium has kind of moved, I think, towards what the other thing that we know, which is the sort of very flat online experiences that, you know, that are easy to use and that, that people already know. So I think there's, yeah, there's just a lot of work to be done there still. But I also, I feel that um, the future is going to be mixed. It's funny because I was reading these um, these articles, you know, like usually like this this week about how a lot of museums uh, in Europe would start like charging for the virtual tours when before was something that was kind of like not even like thinking about it. And now like, again, like I feel like every kind of, and I'm going to quote it, like access to kind of, I'm, I'm, like, I'm able to pay like a stream kind of service, you know, they start understanding like the cost of that content and make sure they can pay for that and monetize that. I'm not saying that's, that's the best example, but I'm feel that is a, uh, there is an audience that's going to go in that direction. What do you think about how is that going to be that kind of like human interaction within that virtual space? Besides that, you can choose your avatar and talk and chat with your people. Do you think that something's going to happen? I think there will be new rituals and new ways of engaging. I think with avatars, I think it's too a little bit too young um, to really to really find out what happens. One thing I've noticed hanging out in VR is that each world has their own small talk. So you know, when you are in one particular environment, you're going to mostly be talking about that environment what's happening there and then you're going to be talk, talking about um maybe your gear and you know so, so so conversation get they get very directed by uh the environment you're in rather than maybe your personal connections or the you know because usually you would meet people through a friend or you know even if you meet them online you 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 have certain things in common let's say but what you have in common there is actually the space and so 
So that's quite interesting to me in terms of like the content of people talk about. But we are in this very skeuomorphic moment, right? Like we're um, when when we started to have iPhones, the library looked like an actual sort of library with you know uh, wood wood in the background, like like a little bookshelf. And I think now we've learned that the library on your phone doesn't need to look that way, and we still understand that it's a library. And I think that transition hasn't quite happened yet in VR um, or in in three D social spaces. Um, and I think that's that's going to be a really interesting process. I, I love that example. I mean, to me as a non-architect, it sounds very exciting to say in traditional architecture, when you were building physical spaces that take a lot of time, uh, cost a lot, you only see in the end how people are going to interact with it. So let's say you build a public square. Will people adapt it and use it and get creative within it or not? You will only see once it's there, right? Whereas in digital spaces, you can basically build a new space every day and test it with people to see how they interact. Is this something you actually do, Pika? That you test a lot to see how do people adopt and create these new rituals and behaviors? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, some practices that come from software design. Um, and I'm very critical of, of sort of that hip adoption of, you know, everything needs to come from the way that everything's called an incubator and has to be uh, associated with that because it's uh, hip right now, but there are some practices that are really useful. And that's something that I actually got exposed to and learned at New Inc. It was a cultural incubator in New York City at the New Museum. And the whole idea is that it's an incubator for artists or for people who are in the creative fields, but teaches them some of these methods that are usually used in, in software design. And I think that that's something that I actually now apply to try to apply to physical spaces as well. So we are big fans of mock-ups, of you know, getting people to, to be involved. And sometimes it's really as simple as in the early design process, putting yourself into kind of first person perspective, uh, literally, but even just mentally, emotionally, kind of walking through the space. And that's something I ask my student always, students always to do. I'm like, imagine yourself in the space. And that's not so, it seems so obvious, but it actually isn't traditionally necessarily part of architecture. Architecture has always been a very, very bird's eye view profession, right? The master plan, the idea that we have to kind of think large and think of the system and think of the organization. But the idea that you actually think of the user and the affordances of your architecture is still quite new and um, something I'm really excited about. I feel like there's this eternal balance between the audience and and the producer or the audience and the architect, right? So what you said, Biko, I thought was quite interesting to say, well, technology is still flat. So people are still basically using very easy things that are convenient because it's so easy in the digital space to just switch off. And we see that with tons of content that's being produced. Like if a Netflix show doesn't capture you in the first two minutes, people just switch off, which means, you know, a lot of things get just much more streamlined and less critical or less challenging. I just put that out there. Um, I guess it's the same when you design an exhibition at the Met. It's like you basically, you, you probably want to challenge people in, in their approach and their thinking, but you can't also challenge them too much because it might get overwhelming and overbearing. So what do you both of you think of this balance of how much can you push an audience to adopt new ways of thinking about things or new ways of adopting new technologies? And how much do you have to maybe scale back a little and still make sure it's not overwhelming and still a very broad uh, mass of people can actually access it and use it? I mean, when you're working with, with bigger institutions, I mean, probably... 
the, the topic more broad, you know, and the audiences are more general and you have to, you know, scale back, as you were saying. But when they had the minute to work, you know, for example, a recent project at the also in the pandemic was working with uh, America Society, that is a, a very interesting organization in, in, in New York with a long history of promoting um, Latin American artists from New York to the world, I guess. Uh, and it was the very first time we managed to bring contemporary architecture to them, you know. So again, it was like the challenge for us was trying to see how deep we can go into the language and how specific, not only because the institution was more about art, it wasn't about architecture, but also understanding that we were bringing those Latin American practitioners to like a broader um public that wasn't, uh, you know, didn't have the language. So in that way, we were showing them that architecture was big, beyond just like a little, uh, you know, building in some place in South America. And we can talk about, you know, things from racial issues to affordable housing to towards, uh, you know, specific design constraints uh, to human planning. I mean, even at the Met, you know, people had to actually go there and put some kind of commitment into and probably stand even in line and go through a crowd. So you can actually expose them to quite a bit and they won't just leave right away because they already made some effort to go there. And when you're clicking onto a website and like you said, if you don't like it immediately, you're just going to close it. And that's it, end of experience. So I do think we have to, again, be thinking of the user journey in virtual space as well and kind of you know, pick people up where they are and, 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 and help them engage in these journeys in different ways. And for example, when we do hubs events, we always have a Zoom call going on at the same time, um, just because that's something that we know people are familiar with. And so we often start with that, you know, we kind of explain the idea there and then we switch over and there's always kind of like a safe space you can go back to if you get lost or if something happens in in, in a VR space, you know that there's a, a people there in a format that you're familiar with. So I think creating these these bridges and this sort of padding around experiences um, is really important. And, you know, there's a lot of innovation. Um, this year, there's definitely been a lot of different ways that people have have thought about that, not always successfully. And that's what was interesting, you know, sort of how how you can really look at this year. I should probably do an <clears throat> analysis, pandemic uh, sort of accessibility in virtual space or something like that. I think something you touch upon here is the the word access in a way. You mentioned that in the early, in, in the beginning of the conversation, you know, when at the Met you designed for wheelchair use and so on. And I think Besides the pandemic, what 2020 has also brought upon are these movements like Black Lives Matter is an increasing focus worldwide on the topic of inequality, diversity, exclusion, inclusion. So what do you think about uh, when it comes to designing for access, understanding that maybe all of us are biased because we come from a certain background, because we come from a certain philosophy and so on. So how do you try to uh, include that in your practice to not fall into these biases and exclude people or design for as many diverse people as possible? One way that we start to think about is is our office structure. We have actually always been remote first because our office is distributed between Vienna and New York, and we also travel a lot. And so our ent- entire infrastructure is online anyway. And but I think we always had this idea that maybe we'll have a physical office at some point. And we gave that up this year also with a thinking of hiring practices. So um, we just had our fully first 
uh, our first fully remote intern. Um, and what that allows us to do is actually hire people who are not necessarily like us, who don't live in cities, who who might have a different background. And um, that in itself, I think, is important to bring different voices to the table. And Agus, is this something, can you share something from your current thinking about how to do that? When it comes to a new project, how do you make sure to address so many diverse needs and personalities and backgrounds to actually access these productions that, that you do? I, I, two things. I think that um, being, being based in New York, even though it's still a very unequal place, it's forced myself coming from and coming to understand that the uh, th there is there is a word that is an urban space extremely diverse. First, second is like I always think, and especially think like now more than ever. Like I think there is a there is a responsibility as a producer, as a practitioner, to bring over as Vika was explaining with her office. Like make sure that somehow you bring the most diverse group of voices and narratives to whatever projects you are working on. And that's again going back to that um, small like virtual slash infiltrator project that we did America Society for me, like try to find in those practitioners, Latin American practitioners that weren't like the, the basic rich white male was so important. And the interesting thing will happen is after you put out there, I mean, what are the connections that are seeing those people having with other similar groups or happening with those practitioners that are to places that weren't invited before? How you make sure those names start circulating among other scholars or other practitioners, or other curators? And I think that, um, I think we, we have to acknowledge the power position that you have when you, in that, in that place, uh, and making sure you do it with responsibility, uh, and making sure that whatever decision you're going to make it, you're going to have an impact. Let's say you talk to an institution, an institution that could be a museum, a theater, an association, a society that has a physical space, and they want to put up a new exhibition or they want to put up a new production. What would you suggest to a cultural institution of how to adapt to this new world of technology, virtual spaces, in order to reach an audience and do something exciting? The future is going to be mixed. I think. You know, the, this idea of hybrid design or the idea that our physical spaces are going to be kind of contingent or really intermixed with our virtual spaces. I mean, it's already happening with our smartphones in our pockets and so on. But I think museums and cultural institutions at large maybe haven't been taking full advantage of that. And so... I think that integration will increase. And that's also something I think that we're, we're quite interested in as an office is to explore these intersections and to explore, uh, you know, I talked a lot, about, a lot about VR, but AR is actually also really, really interesting in that regard, right? In terms of like, or M mixed reality, MR, augmented reality uh, is AR. So it's, I think, and, and those are even just current technologies. I think it will even increase. And again, it's not about using a fancy word. It's more about, uh, thinking about the itinerary of somebody and and picking up people who are already online, bringing them to the physical space, and then picking up the people who are in the physical space and bringing them online. Right? I think it's <laughs> I think it's a little bit about that exchange. Yeah, I think that's what I would tell a museum. I think most of the institutions really realize that um, your audience is not just the number of you know people getting to your physical space that go through the doors. You know, I think that idea of having someone counting there with a, a counter, I think it's just already like totally 
of outdated. You know, like I think now the institutions understand and understood hopefully that, okay, that's need to happen because I think also talking about the future, that one-on-one relationship with exhibition, but also like the possibility of like expanding their mission and the programming worldwide. Period. I mean, that's going to happen. And then how that going to come back to them, like as members, as people that are going to support the institution in many different capacities, not only money. You know, I think that they start realizing that they're, they're not geographical limits anymore. Yeah, I have an example, actually. Um, this year, uh, the Future Architecture Platform, which is, I, I used to be a participant in it, and Agus actually was in it as well. Um, and I've been on the advisory board for a few years. They're a very physical event. Um, the whole idea is to connect um, a number of institutions across Europe, um, architecture museums and galleries, um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're, they have slightly different profiles from very large ones to very small ones, but it's kind of a network between all these different institutions. And the idea is to support young architects by basically flying them all over Europe and bringing them to these institutions um, and doing various projects, lectures and events there. So this year, you know, it was a total dilemma so what to do now. I mean, the, the whole premise is that it's about social connection, about people getting to know each other and doing things together. And so the platform then, under uh, guidance of Anastasia uh, Smirnova, built a platform called Rooms. And it was quite simple. It was basically just a website that allowed every institution to kind of showcase uh, their work through a video or some other online format. But it was really helpful, actually, in bringing everybody together. And, you know, now we're talking about the next steps. And they want to keep it, of course. You know, it's already there. We can expand it. And uh, it's a great... It's, it's not that now we're going to go back to normal and forget about that. I think it's people are going to just have both. And kind of those, the physical and the virtual formats will feed uh, into each other. I, I do think that geography is still important, actually. Um, I don't think we... We will, and I don't think we want to get rid of it. Um, you know, I think uh, in terms of language, uh, it's important to actually cultivate local languages. And also in terms of audience, I think it's important to to speak to very specific audience and not try to make everything entirely global. Um, so I think that's going to be an interesting negotiation where other, you know, museums um, and institutions can sort of fine tune or define which kind of how big or, you know, how specific they want their, their, their audience to be with our own website. You know, I can see that most people who go can go into analytics and, and sort of see where people look at your at your website. And obviously, anybody in the world could look at it. But, you know, most of the hits are in New York and in the US and in Germany because we have a project there now. And when we had a project in Austria, there were more project, more more hits in Austria. So there's something extremely local about how people use the internet that we are not acknowledging. We always talk about, yeah, it's global. Everybody can go. Yeah, but no, it's not. <laughs> right? Again, to my point earlier, you have to kind of, you, you have to put a lot of work in to people actually accessing this this spaces. Just putting it online is not going to make it accessible. What's going to make it accessible is putting in really hard work to promote it, to advertise it, to you know make podcasts, to do all these different things to bring people in. And it's true that <clears throat> the virtual have a different type of competition. You know, the offer is out there, and you, I mean, and if you have the privilege to have a device to access, that's another thing that we need to acknowledge. You know. Another topic you just touched upon is data. I think uh, you know we have an we have an episode on its own about data, but I think what's so interesting about what you both just said is that in the past, or like let's say in a in a non digital, non technological world, 
a lot of the things you do is guesswork in the end, or it's based on experience and curation and, and you know, councils of experts coming together thinking, we think this is the right approach or this is the right approach. Essentially, what we have now because of digital experiences is so much data about the audience. Like, let's say if I was an institution, I'm going to put up an exhibition next year and I'm going to put a lot of money in it. It's probably a good idea to test it in a virtual environment first to see how does the audience respond. And then I take these insights from 100 people who have been to my virtual exhibitions and saying they like this and they like that. And then I put it in the real world for 10,000 people to see it possibly. Is this something you also think about, these data points that you get in order to design and be closer to, you said, bigger the user, the so-called user? We are super interested in that. In general, I think the data is quite an issue in terms of like, how do we organize it? You know, how do we deal with all that data? My, my friends at Channel Studio, they're graphic designers, but build websites that work with AI and data collection. And um, they're doing, I think, really, really interesting work in that realm. And they, they said something beautiful once where they were saying, you know, how, how can we sort of bring all the data that we've produced together into one world? Because right now it exists in so many different formats. And I think that thinking applies to exhibitions because exhibitions in the end are also just a bunch of data. <laughs> uh, but traditionally that data has been, you know, kind of treated in a certain way, put on a show with lots of love and effort usually by everyone involved, and then it disappears. Um, and that's fine that there's something poetic in that as well. Uh, but I think in terms of, you know, how how do we archive that kind of data? How do we bring it together into one ecosystem? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's actually probably the challenge of our generation, really, you know. Uh, I don't think any individual is going to solve that, but it's something that I think we should be also thinking about as designers and, and think about kind of the whole life cycle of these exhibitions. And again, something where the digital and the virtual can influence each other because the digital can become a repository or an archive of the physical. And I'm going to leave this here because I think it could open for a new podcast. But I mean, like the idea of like the, the permanence and then impermanence, you know, and I think that the whole, what are the things that we need to archive? What are gonna, what's going to be the the one-on-one the, the -on -one physical experience in the future? I mean, I'm talking the future, not in the next six months. I'm talking like in the, in the next 10 years. I think the, the question of permanence and impermanence is a very important one, right? Because... You could also argue, <laughs> yeah, that a lot of the, the virtual stuff is also so fleeting, right? I mean, you can build these amazing spaces in a virtual world and people engage with it for two hours and then it's gone. It, whereas physical spaces have these permanent structures to it that make it, the experience of it, the cultural experience of it, make it different per se. I, I don't know, Pika, do you have some thoughts on like, do virtual, is there a permanence to, to virtual experiences? I think the physical is not as permanent as it's made out to be. Buildings are constantly changing. And, you know, I'm not talking about the human horizon, <laughs> but historically buildings tend to disappear. In some cultures, like in Japan, they're actually also designed to not last for a very long time. We talked about exhibitions earlier. I mean, all the work that, you know, I did at the Met, for example, is long gone. Um, and the only archive of that at this point is virtual. So I think we just haven't figured out how to really preserve virtual memories and how to create a virtual archaeology. Um, that's the challenge I was talking about earlier. And that's, I think, what's really important because I think it would be a pity if all these formats and early experimentations are 
are, are lost because we don't figure out how to preserve that data. And inevitably, a lot of it is going to be lost and that's okay. But, you know, I think I think developing these tools and data sets to, to collect that data is, is just of utmost importance. But yeah, I think there's also people who print out all their digital photos as a backup in the physical and put them in, in, in certain conditions to make sure that they're preserved. So I think it's a... The answer isn't on one side, actually. I think it's kind of a two-sided coin again. And that's it. As usual, you can check out the show notes in your podcast app to discover more references and links to the concepts, projects, and great minds that accompanied us throughout our virtual salons. I personally have learned a lot over the last six conversations, and I hope you have too. We'll be back with more episodes soon. So please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay in the loop. Finally, the Culture and Technology Podcast is produced by the Vienna Business Agency. The Vienna Business Agency supports Vienna's businesses, economy, and creative industries, and in doing so, shapes the city's future. Bye for now.